0: Okay. Good evening. How's everyone? Everybody doing well? Well, it's good. It's good to be here with you. I didn't know if I. I, I mean, I didn't wasn't sure if I was going to make it back or not. Uh, I've been in Gulf Shores. My father's been in the hospital, and and uh, he, he's released today. He's fine now. There was a secondary infection to an outpatient surgery that he had the end of last week, and um, and I got into town at like five o'clock. Sent. Josh, my slides at, I don't know, 6 o'clock, 6.15 maybe, Um, and so uh, you have to excuse me. My notes are a wreck. Um, We're going to make our way through this passage, though, here in a moment as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes, Um, and this this evening I'm going to be in a passage that was made popular, uh, and many of you will know was made popular by a group, a rock band called the Birds in the 1970s, right? Am I wrong? My, I, my, I grew up listening to this. My dad actually uh, introduced me to, to, to this song. Um, and so Ecclesiastes chapter 3, everybody turn, turn, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. <laughs> I've been waiting to do that all night. And then I had five hours to think about how I was gonna open that, and that was that's it. so uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three. I'm gonna read for us the first um nine verses, and then um, I'll pray for us, and then we'll we'll jump right into the passage. by the way, too Pastor John is. Uh he's here. He's over with the Celebrate Recovery Group. He has not had much time to really spend with that group. And so he wanted to take some time to go over there tonight, hang out with them, and just kind of see uh, what they're about, what they're doing, um, and to kind of drink some of that in and, and see about how how we may be able to, as pastors, to to kind of lean in on that ministry a bit more in the future. So that's where he is tonight. Uh, and so let's, let's jump right into the passage, though, for us this evening. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from everything, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent, silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? Let's pray. God, our Father, we God, we come before you. I come before you personally, God. just incredibly recognizing my own inadequacies right now in this moment. And so God, I'm I'm leaning on you. I'm leaning on your word, Father, that your word would guide us. Nothing flashy is gonna happen here, God. We just want to see your word. And so God, I just pray, Father, that you would speak now through your word. God, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but we can be doers. And God, I pray, all this in Christ's name, Amen. So so far, in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon has taught that if this cursed world is all there is, then all our actions in this life are futile. We do things that that don't matter. Then and then we die. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Welcome to Capshaw Baptist Church. We do all these things and we die. In, in that reality, nothing in which you look for has meaning and nothing you can turn to uh, or can distract yourself from the harsh realities of life. None of those things really works. Pleasure will not satisfy human longings. Neither will wisdom or work or a lot of money or any of these things. We expend so much energy clinging to and chasing. Solomon's purpose was to expose the the foolishness of life lived without God in order to, to push us to enjoy God and his gifts. I mean, that's the, in a nutshell, in essence, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. So satisfaction in God and his gifts is the meaningful life that Ecclesiastes is, is drawing us towards. And the Spirit's ultimate point in inspiring Ecclesiastes is to to teach us that everything is meaningless unless you have Jesus. If I'm going to sum it up, and that's the point of the time we're going to have together right now, everything is meaningless unless you have Jesus. So the, the time poem in Ecclesiastes 3 is another example to prove Solomon's thesis that life under heaven is, is futile and it is fleeting. So again, Solomon limits his observations to this to the present world that he's living in. When in Ecclesiastes three, verse one, he states that for everything there is an occasion and in time for every activity under, and there and there's a time for every activity under heaven. An occasion What he's talking about here, time, is a period of time in which certain activities take place. So, for example, winter is the time for what? In North Alabama, it's really not the time for this, but maybe New Hampshire, snow, right? Ice, the below, the sub-zero temperatures, the, the, the sub-zero wind chills, right? It's, it's cold. Thus, the, the text states that there is an appointed time or season for every activity, and life moves from one season to the next. You know, my son, Nate, is three years old. And it's perfectly appropriate for him to be pushed around Target and that red shopping cart. Fast forward 20 years, and he's 23, and I'm pushing around in a shopping cart. Something's not exactly right, right? Something, something's up. Something's wrong. So we, we move from one season to the next as we grow, life Moves from one season to the next, and from one activity to the next. And this poem, that the what's translated the preacher, but the Hebrew word there, I'm not even sure preacher is the best representative uh, representation of what I think it is. I think it's more philosopher, teacher than it is preacher. Some translations use the word preacher, but so the poem. That, that he's writing here it does not um, um, the the poem describes these activities this moving on from one season to the next, one activity to the next it does not evaluate these activities as good or bad as wise or foolish um, this particular poem, for instance, but it, or it doesn't it doesn't describe it as being necessarily righteous or Sinful. Each could be appropriate, but but that is not his concern in this poem. That's not his concern. Solomon merely describes the seasons of life. He does not prescribe what we are to do. He does not tell us how to capture all the positive things in life in this list and how to avoid all the, the bad ones. The poem does not teach this proverbial wisdom like wisdom to discern which is the right season or the wrong season. He does not describe the right activity or the wrong activity. That's not in Solomon's intention with this passage. He simply describes the full scale of his life's activities on earth and he he moves through these 14 pairs of opposites matching opposites and that is a literary device called mirrorism I think I'm pronouncing that right mirrorism right anybody any any literary um so I I can say whatever I want here just gonna believe me okay I think it's mirrorism it's spelled m-e-r-i-s-m mirrorism I think that sounds right which not only makes a statement about the two extremes, right, uh, but also that everything is in between. And so, one example, I was trying to think of a, a biblical example of mirrorism, would be the phrase heaven and earth, right? Um, and that's not simply the ground and the sky that he's talking about. He's talking about everything possible, everything in between, everything in creation, heaven and earth, right? Visible and invisible. Thus, these 14 opposite pairings are are meant to to paint, really, a complete picture of the reality of life here on earth. The poem gives the full range of human experience, the natural experience of life, right? Birth and work and love and war and peace and death. So there's a beginning of verse one, right? There is a time to give birth and a time to die. And these are the bookends of life under the sun, and everything else mentioned in this poem falls in this spectrum of life and death. So this is an appropriate way for him to begin this poem. This statement is another reminder of the frailty of life. And it recalls the endless cycle of the generation, right? Of all the generations. Where one generation comes along, And that generation passes away, and another generation comes along, and so on and so forth, right? Death is pervasive in the post Genesis 3 world that we live in. But Genesis chapter 5, right, describes, points out that there are always new generations and they ultimately die as well. And so people sometimes look at Ecclesiastes 3 for for comfort at funerals. And actually the birds actually sang the song and it is actually a it's actually a cheerful uplifting kind of tone to the song. I don't even think it represents what this passage the tone of this passage really. I think the tone the song time by Hootie and the Blowfish is probably a better representative of what this This is actually trying to convey that time is is harsh. It's hard. It's it's not easy on you. And so God creates life, and death is an enemy that reminds us that we live in a sin-cursed world. Not only does human life end, but so does plant life. Look at verse 2. There is a time to plant and a time to pluck. You, some of you, any, any, any uh, gardeners in here? Anybody do any gardening? Right? Do you plant, do tomatoes? Right? Plant tomatoes, right? You plant them in the garden, but eventually a season comes along with an untimely frost or maybe we don't have enough rain. And what happens to that plant eventually? It shrivels up, it dies, and eventually what do you have to do with it? You pull it out right? Verse 3, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. And this kill can refer to, I would say, appropriate forms of self-defense, maybe just war or, um, or, or capital punishment. In this context, it, it might naturally refer to, again, this agricultural theme that I think he's drawing at early on. It's, it's probably more like a farmer that, that nurses— um maybe some cattle or an injured animal back to health only to have to put that same animal down later on when it doesn't recover remember that again these aren't descriptions of the reality they're not they're not prescriptions of what we ought to do okay i want to make that clear <laughs> Your takeaway from this talk is is uh, should not be um, I, I need to go kill someone and I maybe I have a working list already. You know, I, I've discovered pastoral ministry people hear things that that preachers don't say sometimes, and um, so Ecclesiastes three is not a license to kill. And so not only is there a time to kill and heal, there's a time to, to break down and build up, right? Verse 3, the houses of previous generations have um, poured their hearts and all their money into building, and eventually those buildings are condemned. They're torn down, and they're removed for something else to be, to be built in its place. There's a a time to weep and a time to laugh. And there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Verse four, we live in a cursed world of marriages and funerals, right? You get married, you dance at the reception, you rejoice at the news of their pregnancy, of maybe building their family. And we mourn at the news of the miscarriage. That is life under the sun. David danced before the Lord with a great joy when the ark came back to Jerusalem in 1 Corinthians 15. And he cried deeply when his sons uh, at his son's sickness over in second samuel 12 there are moments of joy and levity and there are moments of deep pain time is difficult time is is hard and there's a there's a time again back to the passage, verse five there's a time to to cast away and to gather stones. And this phrase I think is difficult for a lot of people to understand uh, what it means. Most likely the stones uh, the 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 phrase of casting out stones or picking up stones refers most uh, there's an example I think in uh in second Kings where it lays out a war strategy for Israel in which they are to to cast out stones on their enemies fields in order to make them unworkable it disrupts agricultural agriculture right isaiah chapter 5 talk describes the process of clearing stones from the field before you plant the wine vineyard and there's also a time to embrace and a, a time to refrain from embracing there are times when you greet friends with a hug and there are times when you need to sever that relationship, that friendship. When I was in high school, I had good friends. And I thought in that moment, in that time, that these would be the people that I would be with the rest of my life. I'd know them forever and ever. We would be close. And I remember my dad saying, you know, not everybody stays close with their high school friends. And that became really true when I was at the hospital with my father this past week. Um, a girl that I graduated high school with, she she lives down there. Um, and I had not, I probably, I've not seen her in 15 years probably. Um, she walks in the room to come visit my my mom and dad. And uh, it was a sweet moment, but I it just, I was reminded that, You know, this is somebody that I was really close to at a season, and I'm not anymore. And these are the facts of life. There's a time to seek and a time to lose. When you lose something, you, you look hard to find it, but a time comes when you have to give up that search. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about through the course of having three babies, Sarah and I have probably purchased... I don't know, a hundred of those little pacifiers. And we seem to just, they, they would vanish. I'm, I'm convinced that we live on the Bermuda Triangle. And one day we're going to find like just this massive like stash of pacifiers that we won't be able to do anything with, but maybe keep for our grandkids. But, but um, and so we would lose these pacifiers and we would keep having to buy more and more and more and more, right? Just the other day, we were, um, it was about an hour before my middle son's baseball game, and we realized we didn't have his baseball cap. We couldn't find it anywhere. And we tore the house, just tore it apart, looking for this baseball cap. And he ended up having to go play in some weird hat that, that I pulled out of my closet for him to wear. And I had to go buy him another hat, um this past week that doesn't match his team but it's he 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 plays for the cleveland indians and they had the hat with just the c and now he has the hat with a little red indian now so it's fine he looks fine but but he doesn't look like the other kids um you know sometimes our kids will lose toys in the house and they'll come to us crying and sarah and i will say you know I, it's it's here somewhere. It'll show up. I promise. It'll show up. Deep down, we're thinking, we may never see this thing again, right? There's a time to, to keep looking and a, and a time to stop. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away. And the preacher here, the philosopher here, also says there's a time to to take those clothes that you've been holding on to in your closet that you think, one day I'm going to be able to fit in these things again. He's actually saying, take it to goodwill. So there's a time to store and there's a time for a garage sale. There's a time to to tear and a time to sew, verse seven. Most likely this statement refers to the Jewish practice of of tearing your clothes in a time of mourning or a time of grief or, or, um, uh, or repentance. For example, when Jacob thought, a predator beast had had killed Joseph. He, he tore his clothes in Genesis 37. But when the time of mourning ended, then was the time to sew up the garment. So there's also a time to, to keep silence and a time to speak. And the phrase might refer to the wisdom practice of discerning the, the right time to confront or to refrain from the practices of, of confronting someone over whatever it may be. And so verse eight, there's a time, I'm gonna keep, keep moving here so I don't run out of time. There's a time to, to love and hate and there is a time for war and peace, verse eight. The author moves from personal experience at this point to national experience. Again, the poem does not advocate for war or pacifism. It simply describes part of the human experience. For example, a country like Japan that has a foreign policy of pacifism begins to rethink its policy when ISIS beheads a journalist, one of their journalists back in 2015, right? It's, it's inevitable that, that peaceful nations will eventually be pulled into conflict. It's just inevitable. The philosopher saying, this is life under the sun. The poem is the inevitable reality of life under the sun. We all go through these actions of birth, life, work, love, and then death. Nothing really changes for humanity. We seek this truth reinforced in the following we see this truth reinforced in the following verse, verse nine, where he restates the, the question that he talked about earlier in chapter one, verse three, that what gain is there in this reality? What profit or advantage is there in this world where where God has imposed a curse on our toil and activities? And the answer is nothing there is no purpose to life because everything we do is nullified by the curse there is no net gain or change from all the planting all the building all the uh, the, the answer is nothing there is no purpose to life because everything we do is nullified by the curse. The poem here reveals the great absurdity of life because each activity cancels out the other. These 14 pluses and the 14 minuses, and that adds up to a net zero. Every birth ends in death. Every plant that yields fruit is eventually pulled up. Every building is eventually deconstructed. Every celebration gives way to a funeral. And every peace makes way to another war. We seek meaning in all of our activities and we come away frustrated. What do we do? Where do we turn in this frustration? This fresh awareness, I think, of this passage should, should drive us to fear God. And that leads us to the first point I want to make from the passage That apart from Christ, time will always be meaningless and unfulfilling. Apart from Christ, time will always be meaningless and unfulfilling. Let's pick up in verse 10. I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in the hearts of man, in in men's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil that is God's gift to man i perceive that whatever god does endures forever nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it god has done it so that people fear god, ha- god so that people fear before him that which is already has been that which is to be already has been and God seeks what has been driven away. You see Ecclesiastes 10 3:10 uh, it's restating what was said um, in, in, in chapter 1 verse 13, and thus it, it gives the, the negative evaluation to the poem of the first nine verses. You see the tone change? It, it gives the opposite tone to what he's just described in the first nine verses, and then it, it changes. And God, this reality that, that God imposed a curse on creation because of Adam's rebellion. So now we experience this burden, toil, activity, and work, which were once meant to be joyful, designed for um, our good, is now frustrating, Right? But they are now in a cursed world. That's why that labor and that work is hard, right? Our frustration is therefore a God-enforced burden because of our sin, because of our rebellion. So what is the purpose? Why? We see God's intent in the following verses. Look with me again in Ecclesiastes three, eleven. And this this verse right here is an extremely difficult verse to understand. And people people love this verse, but they usually only quote a portion of it. What portion do they normally quote? That God has put eternity in the hearts of man, right? And I'm sure um I'm just not sure they understand what it means. I think it would be helpful for us to walk through these. Clauses. There's three clauses actually in this passage, and I want to look at them separately, separately to see what they say, and then we'll we'll attempt to put them all together to see the whole and how it connects with the negative tone that leads to this point, that led everything up to this point. And so, God made everything beautiful, or ha- perhaps it's it's better to say that. Um. He made it appropriate in its time. It calls us back to the poem to show that the author is now commenting on the times. All the, the times that he talked about here. The phrase has um, has made the, the phrase he made here refers to God's initial act of creation, but it can also refer to everything that has um, everything that has been done since the creation. So the word translated there, beautiful or appropriate, means God made everything good so that everything perfectly fits together, is intricately woven together in its own place and time. So the bottom line, the phrase sums up the poem to show that God is the one in charge of these times and appointed activities. So all the pluses and minuses of the poem are God's appointed events and activities and times. The next phrase famously says that God has put eternity into people's hearts. And this uh, the eternity here It contrasts with the time, which is used 29 times in the poem, the word time, time. Um, We know that lives under the sun is, this life under the sun that we have is not all there is. And thus it is absurd to live as if this life is all there is. There is a desire to live forever. There is a desire for, for more than life under the sun, and there is knowledge of an eternity out there beyond this life. And so, the final and often, uh, the final, the final thing in Ecclesiastes three eleven gives the problem. But man cannot discover the work of God has done from the beginning to end. You cannot know or see God's entire plan to fully grasp it all, no matter how much you want to. The limit of man's knowledge, our finite minds, our finite understanding of time, doesn't match up with the infinite wisdom of God. We live in time. God does not live in time. He's not bound in time. He's not bound in yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is forever. We know there is more out there, and we want to know our purpose and our destiny. However, we are still dependent creatures who can only know and handle a sliver of what the creator is really doing. And if we, let me, let me explain it this way. Think about it like this. Um, Matt Chandler, I once heard a sermon that he preached, and he points out that we are like children in the why stage. Right, the why stage of life. And when you when you tell a child in the why stage to do something, what is his or her? And I've got I've got I've got three kids in the why stage right now. Tell them to do something, and what is their response? Why? <laughs> and they say it enough and eventually it burst out and because I said so, you know. In a, in a sense, we cannot handle all that lies in God's plan. We cannot understand everything. So he tells us, even though you cannot know it all, to trust him, to, to trust me. He says, just trust me. Here then is the main idea of Ecclesiastes 3.11 and how it fits with this absurdity of life described earlier. That we perceive and long for better things than this cursed misery. Um, And we cannot see the full picture. and We must lean on God. We are trapped between time and eternity. And we must trust that God God uses the details to work out a greater plan. I think one of my most favorite movies or film series is the Star Wars trilogy, or well, series, not a trilogy now, but the original trilogy, trilogy is my favorite. Imagine if you had no prior knowledge of that series, and I took you to the movie theater to, uh, and I let you watch the final scene of the Empire Strikes Back, right? The final act of Empire Strikes Back where Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader are fighting. And there's that moment when Darth Vader reveals himself to Luke and he says, what? I am your father. Right? To which Luke Skywalker responds with, that's no, that's impossible. Yeah, that's right. And so imagine I shut the movie off at that point. Uh, you would be perplexed, right? You'd be so confused. You would know that there is a bigger plot. There's something I'm missing. I'm missing a a big picture of what's happening here. And there's a backstory here, and I don't know it all. And um, you have only been shown a sliver of what the writer, the director, the grand story that he's trying to tell. And you would see how there would be a part of the masterpiece that, that worked out well in the end if you saw just a little bit more, right? You saw a little bit more, maybe the first film, maybe the second film. That is the frustration that Solomon feels, this philosopher. This is the frustration that he feels that he's talking about, but also the confidence that something more is going on. We have a a small vantage point. We are frustrated because we cannot get past the fragmented image to see the, the whole picture. We can't see the forest because of the tree we're standing in front of. Right? We want our lives to matter, and we try to find ways to make that happen. And we look to all kinds of pleasures, all kinds of experiences, relationships, and possessions, and hopes, and hopes of making sense of all these things. But we need to understand a divine purpose and plan or, or is set in motion at the beginning and will work out in the end, that there is a sovereign God reigning over all things who not only sees what will happen, but declares what will happen. We were made for the divine and for his purpose. So there should be no surprise that we might get frustrated when you turn away from him. That is the frustration Solomon has been exposing you throughout this book. God wants you to be dissatisfied until you come to fellowship with him. And so this tension leads us to this other passage which Solomon encourages us to enjoy the details of our lives because they are part of this beautiful picture. He says, there is nothing better for Adam's son, Adam's sons than to enjoy good things as long as they live. Verse 12, your life is fleeting. So he's saying, enjoy it while you can. Eat, drink, and enjoy your work because this is God's gift to you. This is God's gift to man. As Solomon said in chapter two, enjoyment of life is a gift that God gives to the one who is pleasing in his sight. So again, the question must be asked, who pleases God? Who is it that pleases God? The answer is that none of us do because we have all sinned. But Jesus is the well-pleasing son who never sinned, but god's wrath was set on him on the cross so that means by the by the means of faith we might become pleasing and acceptable to god which leads me to my next point is it up there that god uses both the easy and the hard times in life to drive us to Christ. Resting in Christ and being reconciled to God through him, we are satisfied in the creator and, in, and enjoy rather than worship, created things. So, so what he's saying here is in the good times and the hard times, he's using these things to, to drive us to God. And so, With that, I think about this. Christians love Romans 8.28. I I love Romans 8.28 and the promise that God works out all things together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. But Paul assures us that the means he uses will be hard. There will be, we will experience famine. We will experience nakedness. We will experience pains. We will experience death. And God uses all of these to conform us into the image of Christ. So Solomon and Paul, Call us to trust God and to be confident that his plan is good. He knows all your days. And he is sovereign over the details and the seasons of your life. Everything from a time to live, a time to be born, and a time to die. He mixes the good and the bad, the joys and the pains together to make something beautiful. We often, we don't, like, we don't like that, do we? We would rather pick and choose. Let me have all the good ones, all the good ones only, right? That's what we want to say. The reality is God loves us far too much to allow just good things to happen in our life. Because in reality, if only good things came our way, would we ever have any reason to turn to him? No, and God knows that. God knows that. He loves us too much to allow this to happen. So he uses both pleasure and pain as a part of his plan to conform us into the image of Christ. So while we live in this cursed existence that's east of Eden, and we long for the Redeemer promised in Genesis 3.15 to come back again so that we can have access to the tree of life, we we know something better is out there. And in this context, the Bible tells us even in Galatians 4, that God sent his son Jesus into this world to experience all of the times and seasons that we do. There was a time for Jesus to be born, a time for him to heal the sick, a time for him to build up, a time for him to tear down long-held structures, a time for him to party with sinners, a time for him to read, uh, to, 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 to cry when his friends went to the grave, a time for him to die. He entered into this miserable world to take on all of its pains and suffering, he took the curse on himself so that God can turn the evil of the cross that wicked men used to murder the Son of God and to give us salvation, to give salvation to the world. Romans 8 tells us our lives fit into the same plan where joy and pain. They ultimately bring us into conformity, into Christ. And so time, time is meaningless apart from Christ. And God uses both the good times and the bad times to draw us to him. So when God has written eternity on the hearts of man, what he's doing is we We long to worship. We long to cry out for a creator God. And so God uses circumstances. He uses activities. He uses time. Everything from life's first cry to our final death. Right? Can you finish the song? Jesus commands my destiny. Right? And so God uses all of this to draw us to him.